Welcome back to Box Madness. Yeah. Sorry, I had a little bit of a, a, of a delay there. <laughs> okay, I was very confused. I was like, oh, God, are we out of sync? But no, it's just no, David no, on we delay. Weren't, we weren't out of sync. I had a really poorly typed hiccup that I just, like, tried to frog into my mouth. <laughs> Welcome to the professional intro of Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name is David. Again, we read books. My name is David. All right, super professional, super professional, super. It's not like we haven't done this this a couple hundred times or something like that. But you know, here we are. Um, Hey, just act like we're new to this. Exactly. Yeah. No. Just fresh faced babes in the field. Uh, that that said, uh, David, would you like to lead us off as we always lead off most to, to, most of the time with uh, yeah. current events? Uh, yeah. So there's one. Um, obviously, we know that the current um, sinophobic propaganda is on uh, Peng Shui, and I I did learn how to pronounce that. It's nice to to talk to people about things instead of just being like, "What the fuck's going on in the news?" And then like, you know, have to research it. It's nice to actually like, you know, hear from people and go, "Oh, that's how you pronounce a name. This is what's going on." Um, but anyway, I mean, as we talked about before, right? There was some. Uh, there was a, a social media post that could translate a, f- a few different ways if you squint, but there's a pretty straightforward translation, even with a straightforward translation. It could be uh, an accusal of sexual assault, but there's there's no formal accusal, and it's not clear that that's it. It seems much more likely that it's somewhere between lamenting uh, a consensual romance or, in my mind, from the language in there, it sounds like, you know, um, some, some weird lamenting that includes uh, some you know emotional manipulation maybe grooming things like that and and any accusation that comes from this should be taken very seriously um of any sexual violence that's that's happened to her but of course not only is there not a clear accusation uh but she's she's not disappeared she's just straight up not disappeared and the propaganda is that she's being disappeared for this and in this propaganda claiming she's being disappeared for this, uh, now the WTA, right? So the IOC's already talked to her. The IOC's like, yeah, we don't see anything wrong. We don't know what everybody's talking about. It's bogus, right? Um, she's been able to contact the outside world. You can see videos of her. She just hasn't been heavily on social media, which why would she after this post? And, um, and so the WTA has not talked to her and has just decided she's disappeared. And they already didn't have any um, tennis events in China and I think also Japan, um, but in China over the next two years because of a, a zero COVID policy. <laughs> and so then they said that they were going to, until she's quote unquote found, um, you know, not not have any tennis tournaments in China, and it's like the, you you didn't have any anyway. What the fuck are you talking about? And she's not disappeared. What the fuck is this? Um, and that's of course been the the propaganda um, talking point push uh, du jour right now. Um, I feel like there was something else, but my my brain is 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 gush. Um. So, yeah, I've been dealing with stuff for, you know, help my son out because being a parent's being a parent and my brain's gush. Yep. 
There we go. Well, that all being said, then let us transition directly into the work for this week. Uh, we are going to be starting on chapter four of neocolonialism, and we are starting with more energetic exploration for metal and mineral resources was undertaken in Africa and elsewhere. Africa's raw materials are an important consideration in the military buildup of the NATO countries, in which are included those of the European common market. Their industries, especially the strategic and nuclear factories, depend largely upon the primary materials that come from the less developed countries. Post-war Europe sustained a precarious shortage of basic supplies for its steel manufacturers. Belgium needed more rich ores, Sweden more coal and coke, which America supplied in return for fine ores. Britain lacked pig iron and scrap, her coke was short and inferior. Both France and Germany had fallen behind in coke supplies. Production of Lorraine coal was declining because lack of equipment. German coal because the Ruhr was producing less. Investment in industries with a high value production, that is, the mineral transformation and heavy industries, while providing the opportunity to influence the European economies and hence their policies towards United States ideological domination, did not give the same scope for the quicker and larger profits that production of primary products in the emerging countries offered. The Point Four program supported the Marshall planners in opening up Africa to United States capital and its European associates. Before the Second World War, only three percent of America's foreign—oh my God—the page won't turn. The page won't turn. For, foreign foreign investments. investments were in Africa, and less than five percent of the continent's trade was with the United States. Firestone interests in Liberian rubber and small participations in South Africa and Rhodesian mines accounted for most of the 200 million invested in Africa. As the war pushed into this continent, military bases and trade connections were established by the Americans, from which they pursued their greater penetrations after the end of the war. ECA, the Marshall Plan, funds financed American exploration groups Yes, sent in the best colonial yeah. tradition to prepare the way for mining corporate mining companies and military expeditions. It was announced by ECA in July 1949 that American experts, America ex- experts with Marshall Plan aid are probing Africa from the Atlas Mountains to the Cape of Good Hope for agricultural and mineral wealth. And later on that, opportunities for American capital participation were disclosed in French North African lead mining, French Cameroon tin mining, French Congo lead zinc mining, an ECA loan to Mines de Zeldija, a French concern under the aegis of the Panora Company, the fourth largest lead and zinc producer in the world, enabled Newmont Mining Corporation, an American mining and crude oil concern with 30% of its interest in South Africa and Canada, to buy into the company and manage its operations. Okay, so basically you have all these European mining companies, you know, they're like French or whatever, and America is just taking them over as part of the Marshall Plan. If you remember, the Marshall Plan was a recovery plan for Western Europe uh, in which the America sent aids and supplies and basically, you know, took over a lot of the colonial, um, you know, administration from these European countries. And it was basically to re-kickstart capitalism 
um, after the, the the crumbling from World War Two, and it not only you know was a major structure and major hedge um, in the Cold War uh, against the spread of socialism West, uh, but also it you know reinvigorated colonization. Um, so major, major, terrible thing. I mean, this is something you know when the Marshall Plan was announced, um, you know Molotov <laughs> walked out of the room. You know, I mean everybody who kind of knew what the fuck it was at the time, uh, but it was a major, major revitalization for western europe and of course a reinvigoration and as we are seeing in this book transfer to america of the colonial properties yep europe's post-war instability was turned to united states account in the new division of africa in the fall of 1949 after america had forced currency devaluation upon the european countries a committee of leading british and american bankers was formed to push u.s investments in africa and other parts of the still remaining british empire A similar committee with similar purpose was established two months later between American bankers and those of France. The hand of these establishments is seen today all over Africa in the consortia that are fast laying a grip on the continent's riches. Rockefeller, Morgan, Kuhn, Loeb, and Dillon read institutions, the big British banks, Barclays, Lloyds, Westminster, Provincial, the investment houses pivoted around Hambrose, Rothschild, Philip Hill, the French banks, Banque de Paris, Estate... Estepay Bas, Banque de l'Union, Paris. French Seine. banks. Just French say French bank. banks. We're done Bank with de la Indochine. Uh, European Union Industrial, Bank Worms, Credit Leones, Lazard Frere, etc. And the leading German and Italian banks. Why Why I, do they just get lumped in? The leading British and, and German and Italian. I yeah, mean, where was the leading 45 French? minutes of that. I, I guess, I guess from how deeply France had specifically colonized Africa, because that was, that was a big central part of France's colonization that we don't see in the West. Um, also, there's a bank that just calls itself Bank Worms. Just know who the fuck you are, I guess. <laughs> I mean, it gets the job done. It does. These and their associates are the financial institutions that dominate the monetary and fiscal sectors of many of the newly independent states. They support the new industrial revolution of automation, electronics, and nuclear and space development, in which America plays the lead and which has swept U.S. imperialism to, pre- to its present ascendancy. American groups dominant in the mining and ore processing and finishing industries are involved directly or through their bankers at financing houses and events into ventures with leading European producers and their financial backers. The finance capitalists who control the leading corporations in the extractive, metallurgical, chemical, nuclear, and space industries of the West are to be seen stretching out across the seven seas and taking command of the sources of primary materials in Asia, Oceania, Australia, New Zealand, Central and South America, and Africa. U.S. investments in Canada in 1962 went up by nearly seven hundred million dollars mostly for developing iron ore properties an additional 270 million invested in other developed countries went mainly to australia and japan latin american investments of the united states capital increased by 250 million dollars in 1962 
In the previous year, increase was over $400 million. The U.S. Department of Commerce reported that the private American investments and assets overseas reached 60,000 million. God damn, I hate when he does that because I got to think, okay, that's 60 billion. 60 yeah. billion dollars at the end of 1962 and advanced a further $3 billion in the first six months of 1963. Private investors in the United States added $4.3 billion in 1962 to their holdings of assets and investments abroad that's a lot of fucking money it seems to be it's it seems like a big number yes Um, direct private american investment in africa increased between 1945 and 1958 from 110 million dollars to 789 million dollars most of it drawn from profits of the increase of 679 million dollars actual new money invested during the period was only 149 million dollars united states profits from these investments including reinvestment of surpluses being estimated at 704 million dollars as a result of african countries sustained losses of 500 55 million dollars if allowances made for grants for non-military purposes estimated then by uss congress at 136 million dollars africa's net total losses still reached 419 million dollars so i mean he's saying you know of course it's extractive the u.s investments just ballooned but more than half of it is just extracting value straight from africa um Official American statistics put the gross profits made by U.S. monopolies in Africa between 1946 and 1959 at $1.2 billion, through other estimates placed them at $1.5 billion. Whichever way their companies were... They are companies were running production at between 80 to 85% of capacity to keep up prices. Steel production, too, was held back to something like 80% of capacity. Exploitation under imperialism does not, not will, always, does not, not will, always. Follow up on the findings of new sources of raw materials. Some of these sentences, I think the translation got a little goofy. Yeah, I think so. Um, but as long as we're getting the broader idea. Uh, whoever monopolizes the major sources of supply controls output by having the decisive voice in what deposits shall or shall not be worked and to what degree. Monopoly allows the monopolist to manipulate the economies of other countries and their interests. Let's read that sentence again. (laughs) Monopoly allows monopolists to manipulate the economies of other countries in their interests. Interests. This is a core, a core tenet of imperialism stretching back to Lenin's book, which we read, and of course is is foundational into this understanding of neocolonialism. In the case of bauxite, for instance, melon-dominated Alcoa is sovereign and has drawn into its orbit the other major producers, Kaiser and Reynolds, because of which the tremendous cost of building power plants upon which the conversion of bauxite into alumina depends, the exploitation of all known reserves of this ore by private capital would defeat the prime incentive of monopoly uh, profit. Uh, the prime incentive of monopoly which is profit, profit. Uh, for the super abundant production that would result with depressed prices. West Africa is exceptionally rich in bauxite, but the individual countries are not equally favored with the power to develop resources. Ghana is providing hydroelectric power, which can be used to convert alumina in both Ghana and Guinea. This would be a welcome cooperative effort within the framework of the of a united continental country. And could you just even imagine that economically, like being able to go to the store and like, oh, I want to buy aluminum foil from the the Ghana, the people supporting brand, and not fucking Reynolds. 
Yeah, you know, exactly. That's, I mean, but Monopoly doesn't let us do that. Nope. Another weapon. An- oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, yeah. Another weapon that is held over the heads of the primary producing countries is the threat of using synthetic alternatives and the replacement of traditional metals by others. Synthetic diamond plants have been established by De Beers, the world's monopolist in natural diamonds, by the Belgian company MIBA, which controls Congo's natural diamonds, the largest supplier in Africa, by the General Electric Corporation in the U.S. and by Japan. The price of copper was held down by the main producers on the London metal market at a period of recession in its marketing because of the likely use of aluminum in its place for certain purposes, while plastics, on the other hand, are frequently proposed as an alternative to aluminum. Vast sums are expanded are expended in research for new materials and in scientific invention of labor-saving machinery and equipment. Thus, metals that are being tr- threatened with substitution are at the same time being developed for a wider variety of finished goods. Such research projects and the resultant re-equipment of factories and industries, which must be done if the original investment is to be justified, calls for tremendous capital sums, which frequently can only be met from the assets of financial and insurance establishments. Consequently, banks and insurance companies dominate industrial finance and exercise a leading role in the push for monopolist ascendancy. The banks and insurance companies have been foremost in the process that has brought monopoly to its present peak, and it is their financial power that supports the increasing movement towards greater and greater concentration of monopoly. Today, competition in the thrust to secure and hold monopoly over whole industries and sources of raw materials has intensified to the point where mergers are taking place at a dizzy rate. The struggle is grimly tense, and in the ding-dong battle for domination, a truce is arranged at critical points by which influence is divided with mutual consent. Harmony, however, is more apparent than real. The struggle for redivision is proceeding all the time, and the changes that take place within the combining organizations are observed to be more and more frequent. Present-day monopoly is highly variegated and spread out. While it draws its strength from its monopolistic position, it is, on the other hand, seriously exposed to the dangers that face a multiple organism that stretches its limbs to extremity in different directions. A fracture at any one point can lead to a disjunction which may unbalance the structure, and the Monopoly's rivals are always on the alert to spot its most exposed parts in order to deliver a blow that will enable the most relentless competitor to institute insinuate into the broken organ. Hence Monopoly, having passed through the stages of cartelization, combine, trust, and syndicate, is today more and more making use of a further protective safeguard. That is the consortium through which it aims at immobilizing the rivals and disarming the associates who are permitted to join this most ravishing of imperialist contrivances. Usually in a consortium, there is a dominant party, either directly or through and with affiliates and associates, which enables it to exert the largest influence upon the affairs of the consortium. Furthermore, each of the parties to the consortium will have its own string of appendages or even a principal standing outside the consortium. All continue the fight outside, while those within exercise their efforts to enlarge the importance of their share of the group activities. For example, as a monopoly, it will be in control of a complex of companies connected at many levels with the production of primary materials. They're processing from the original state right through all the stages of transformation into a variety of semi-finished and finished goods from the most ordinary article to the most complicated and delicate equipment and heavy plant and machinery. That was a long-ass sentence. Holy shit. That was a long-ass sentence describing vertical integration for, yes. for anybody who doesn't know what vertical integration is. 
The monopoly does not restrict itself to a single raw material, though it will be preeminent in one or two. Nor does it restrict itself to any particular department of manufacture or enterprise that may be ancillary to its basic activities, though here again it may specialize in certain lines. Many monopolies branch into real estate and land development projects as construction and contracting work bring quick and high returns and high rents. This form of capital investment is growing rapidly in the present era of enlarging industrialization and the growth of new towns and extends to large-scale agriculture. In Africa, the consortium is making the most sinister penetrations. It extends from the monopolistic amalgamations of American and European finance capital, particularly those combined within the European common market, where financial consortia have been set up for the most effective means of profiting from the competitive struggle that is spiraling within this so-called unifying organization. The prime objective is to monopolize Africa's sources of raw materials, not, as it is claimed, to assist the African countries to develop their economies. For the materials are carried off, largely in their raw state or as concentrates to enhance the productive output of the imperialist countries and to be returned to them in the form of heavy equipment for extractive industry and the infrastructure for carrying the resources away. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're going to revisit this over and over again. We're going to say this redundantly because this is core to the underdevelopment of Africa and how this neocolonialism works, right? Raw materials are extracted. Infrastructure is set up just for the extraction of raw materials. Raw materials are exported, and then capital is imported, already owned by the foreign companies that are extracting raw materials for them to further exploit the country and extract raw materials. And over and over and over. And over and over. It is out of the revenue from the trade in these materials that the African countries look to amass part of the capital that will make it possible for them to utilize these same commodities in the service of their own development. Paradoxically, however, these precious counters in Africa's future are meantime being used to widen the economic gap between her and the highly industrialized countries, which are hurriedly exploiting the opportunity to make good deficiencies in their economies. Since those who are carrying on the exploitation are also the monopolists who manipulate the markets for primary products at the one end and the price for the final products at the other end, the countries of origin must be pinned down to a long wait before they can tackle on a major scale the capital problem facing all the developing countries of seriously raising the standard of life of their people if they make no effort to gird their resources in a more practical and self-supporting manner. This is the answer to those pious economists who assure us that what matters is not what is taken out of our lands, but what is left behind. The reply has been given by the commissioner of... I'm sorry, I'm still laughing at the pious economists. Uh, The reply reply has been given by the commission... uh, for aid to the development of OECD and its estimate that the industrial countries continue to increase their gross national product by 3% per annum. It will take less, it will take the less developed countries 200 years at least to catch up with their standard of living, assuming that the unindustrialized nations read an reach an annual increase of 5%. Yet how problematical the achievement of this 5% remains in the light of the drain on resources from the less developed countries to the highly developed ones. In most African countries, the rate of rise in the domestic product has barely kept pace with the rate of population growth of 25 to 3%. It is the less developed countries that continue to carry the burden of increasing development of the highly developed. 
Firestone, for example, has taken $160 million worth of rubber out of Liberia in the past quarter century. In return, the Liberian government has received a paltry $8 million. The average net profit made by this American company is three times the entire Liberian revenue. Jesus. From, yeah. <laughs> the co- the company that extracts from Liberia is richer than Liberia, and that happens in monopoly after monopoly after monopoly. Firestone is just one clear example. From south to north, financial and industrial consortia have spread across Africa, busily staking out claims to the mineral, metal, and fuel resources, to forest and land produce, and erecting extractive and primary conversion industries in which they're entrenched as stanchions. In Algeria, for example, the really big investment stampede coincided with the War of National Liberation. Between 1951 and 1955, there was an inrush of French and French-American investment greater than ever before. Win or lose, the financial and industrial interests were entrenching themselves within the Algerian economy. Throughout Africa, the industrial giants are supported by financial institutions, which dominate the monetary and fiscal sectors of so many of the independent states. Most heavily engaged are the mammoth banking and insurance institutions and the multi-millionaire companies they control, bolstered by the international institutions like the World Bank and its affiliates. These formidable alliances radiate from the United States, Britain, Germany, France, Holland, Italy, Sweden. They move around the metallurgical and chemical combines with the ECSC, such as the such as Solic, GIS, Cytalor, Unisor, Krupp, Thyssen, Coleman, Perilat, F- Farbworky, Heisch, Bayer, BASF, ICI. I, oh, and ICI. There's no and. It just says ICI. Uh, but it's and ICI. And there are assemblages of bankers such as Confreak. Yeah. Oh, it's, okay. It's a French consortium. Uh, it's a Confreak. Confreak. It's super freaky. No. God just me. It. No. 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 Good luck with that one. Bye. Right. <laughs> Love you, buddy. All right. <laughs> Uh, situated at the same address as the International Bank in Luxembourg, Eurofin, Compagnie Bank Care. I am tired of the French words. Uh, <laughs> Finsider, Cofemer, Union Europene Industrielle et Francière. Fr- financier. Financier. <laughs> I just screwed up by all the French and others. Powerful American corporations like Bethlehem Steel, United States Steel, Republic Steel, Armco Steel, Newmont Mining, Johns Manville, Union Carbide, Olin Matheson, Alcoa, Kaiser, crop up among all the post-war primary material producing projects in this continent. Their alliances are spread among the leading metallurgical and financial companies of Europe in combinations that mask the underlying competition. This competitiveness erupts to the surface when circumstances cause a breakdown in the facade of peaceful coexistence between rival imperialists operating in the sovereign states of others, to which they make assumptions of power and use as pawns in the struggle for monopolistic supremacy. Gabon is vocal testimony to these assertions. Mass discontent with the existing regime led to the disorders of February 1964 was the occasion utilized by France to warn the United States that she would brook no encroachment on the claims she lays to the manganese, uranium, and oil riches of this, her former colony. Neglected under the colonial regime, these resources have assumed in 
inestimable value to France in the struggle against the advancement of American imperialism in Europe and the new epoch of atomic rivalry. France sent in paratroopers to force the issue of whose pawn Gabon would remain. United States Steel may have the dominant participation of Kamalog, which is short for another fucking French name, um, which is working on the bed of the vastly rich Franceville manganese deposits. But France, through the sea de mine uranium de, Fran- de Franceville, controls the uranium field of, Man- of Manana. And this it is, time it is Franceville. This time it is Franceville. It, it is Franceville. Fran- yeah, it's Franceville. <laughs> it's fucking Franceville. And is urgently occupied in an attempt to foil the aspirations of American oil barons to undisputed access to Gabon's offshore petroleum reaches. And that is the end of a very important, very good, very yes. well done, and very full of way too damn many French names chapter. Well, let's hope that moving on to chapter five will get us uh, out of the French. I don't think it will, because we're I, still talking about Africa. Yeah. And France. Yeah. France were huge pieces of shit in Africa. This title is uh, is subtitled Citations Needed. Uh, it is the truth behind the headlines. <laughs> so we are, we're going to do some media criticism here with Kwame Nkrumah. Here we go. All right. Love really, this stuff. To understand what goes on in the world today, it is necessary to understand the economic influences and pressures that stand behind the political events. The financial columns of the world's press give, in fact, the news behind the news. Every few days, we come upon such newspaper announcements as Morgan Greenfell participates in New French Bank, or African Banking Group, or Consortium gains voting power in Hewlett, South African Sugar Monopoly, or New Factoring set up in Germany. There are newspaper headlines actually taken. These are newspaper headlines actually taken at random. However, when examined even briefly, the facts reveal an attuned line of communication between powerful financial groups that exert the most decisive pressure upon the happenings of our time. The facts relate to the men and interests directly involved or indirectly connected with the rearrangements to the article's cover. Not that the full facts are ever revealed. On the contrary, they are more more often concealed, and it takes knowledge of the careers of the personalities and groups which the articles link to see behind them the inevitable direction of the reported arrangements and their intrinsic meaning in terms of economic and political power. That does sound like media criticism, but that was said very formally. Yes. (laughs) But well, uh, let us take the item of the Morgan Grenfell participation in the new French bank. Financial Times, London, 18th December, 1962. Morgan Grenfell and co acts effectively as the London end of the most important American banking house of JP Morgan and co, which in 1956 already owned one third of the British company. It should not, therefore, surprise us to learn that the new Continental Bank in which Morgan Grenfell is participating is called Morgan at Sea. More, spe- more especially, since 70% of the capital of 10 million new francs is held by the Morgan Guarantee International Finance Corporation and 15% by Morgan Grenfell, what about the remaining 15%? This is divided between two Dutch banks, Hope & Co. of Amsterdam and R. Mies & Zunen of Rotterdam. Which, with both of which the Morgan Group has had close association over many years. This association has been drawn even closer by the acquisition in March 1963 of 14% in both of them by the Morgan Guarantee International Banking Corporation, a subsidiary of Morgan Guarantee Trust. How was this done? 
through the purchase of stock in Bankier Compagnie, a company that consolidated the activities of the two Dutch banks, which nevertheless continue to do business under their own names. This form of one in two is the accepted formula by which the great combinations attempts to delude the world about their compact formations. That is really on the nose because we see that so much nowadays of, mm-hmm. oh, here are these eight different brands, like especially during things like, you know, when Kellogg goes on strike and you're trying to be conscious of, okay, what are the Kellogg products that, that I need like to avoid? You different brands and you need exactly. like three of it's, them were Kellogg. Yeah. Yeah. You think maybe one of them is, but they're all, they all look like you have this choice. But they're all still funneling up to the same one or two companies. Uh, yeah, the combinations. They're all kinds of, of, I mean, not just food, any industry. This is a consistent thing across industries, but food comes to mind the most easily and the most easy the, the first one that comes to mind in food is Nestle people think of all the like the Nest Cafe and Nest Quick and all those things but but where you really see Nestle in the grocery store if you go to the frozen pizza aisle like every single major pizza frozen pizza brand is Nestle good grief Chairman of Morgan at Sea is Mr. Pierre Maynal, a vice president of Morgan Guarantee Trust in Paris, whose brother, Mr. Raymond Maynal, is a director of the bank Worms. Hey, they're back. <laughs> vice president of Morgan at Sea is the retired Honorable Viscount Harcout C, KCMGOBE, a managing director of Morgan Grenfell and chairman of four important British insurance companies, British Commonwealth, Gresham Fire and Accident, Gresham Life Assurance, and Legal in General. French African banking move captions an item of rather less than eight lines in the Financial Times of July 26, 1963, which informs us shortly that the network of the Bank Commerciale Africaine in Senegal, Ivory Coast, Cameroon, and Congo Republic has been taken over by the Société Générale, France's second largest bank. It is in the single command the newspaper allows itself it's in the single comment the newspaper allows itself that we find the grist. The arrangement will result in a substantial increase in the volume of deposits held by Societe Generale. Societe Generale was founded under Napoleon the Third in eighteen sixty four. One of its chief participants was Adolf Schneider, a member of the Schneider Iron and Steel Empire, who was at the same period also one of the regents of Banque de France. Both Banque de France and Société Générale have now been nationalized. This means, in effect, that the French government has a direct interest in the network of the Banque Commerciale Africaine that Société Générale has now taken over. Nationalization does not stand in the way of the closest association with the world's most powerful private banking institutions, as the facts given under the title African Banking Group, West Africa, September 22, 1963, illustrate. The title, however, is misleading. There is little that is African about the group, the body mainly being concerned being the Bankers International Corporation, a subsidiary of Bankers Trust Company, which shares with Morgan Guarantee Trust the commercial business of J.P. Morgan and Company. The others are Societe Generale and other unnamed European financial institutions. This combination of Western banks topped by the long-armed Morgan interests is to extend the formation of banks in just those territories where Societe Generale has acquired the interests of Banque Commerciale Africaine, namely Ivory Coast, Senegal, Cameroon, and Congo, Brazzaville. The American Federal Reserve Board has given its approval to the Morgan extension, as have the governments of the African countries concerned. 
comment is unnecessary since we can readily accept the view of the senior vice president and head of the international banking department of the bankers trust mr gt davies who happily announced that participation in these four nations will substantially increase the scope of bankers trust companies activities in africa a continent in which we are vitally interested the news item concludes with the information that Bankers International Corporation has equity interests in the Liberian Trading and Development Bank, Tradvco, and in the United Bank of Africa, Nigeria. The fact that another sugar consortium has managed to obtain over 50% of the ordinary shares and thereby the majority voting power in the South Africa sugar monopoly of Sir J. Hewlett and Sons appears on the surface to be entirely unrelated to the other newspaper items we have already scrutinized. But let us go on with our examination. Behind the combination of sugar companies that has gained ascendancy in the Hewlett monopoly are visible the hands of two important South African share issuing and underwriting houses, Philip Hill Higginson and Co. Africa and United Acceptances Limited. Harold Charles Drayton is the dominating personality in the Philip Hill chain of financial and investment companies based in London. Harry F. Oppenheimer of South Africa is chairman of Union Acceptances. Among Mr. Drayton's company appointments are those of Chairman of European and General Corporation, Second Consolidated Trust, and Director of Midland Bank and Midland Bank Executor and Trustee Company, Eagle Star Insurance Company, Standard Bank, Consolidated Goldfields of South Africa, and Ashanti Goldfields Corporation. So basically, big bank, 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 big 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 bank, all the big banks. And this is a little bit maybe where we're figuring out about these Oppenheimer names too. Yep. Mr. Oppenheimer, among his more than 70 company appointments, includes those of Chairman of African Explosives and Chemical Industries, goddamn, Anglo-American Corporation of South Africa, De Beers Consolidated Mines, and First Union Investment and Trust. He is Director of African and European Investment, Barclays Bank, British South African Company, and Central Mining and Investment Corporation. So basically, he's a high up in like every rich structure in Great Britain. Seems that um, <laughs> Deputy Chairman of Anglo-American Corporation is Sir Kay Akut, who is also a director of British South Africa Company and Standard Bank. Co-director with the Deputy Chairman of Anglo-American Corporation on British South Africa Company is Mr. Robert Anand, who sits beside Mr. Drayton on the board of Consolidated Goldfields. Mr. Anand, who is who also has the distinction of being an extraordinary director of Scottish Amicable Life Assurance Society. I don't know what Scottish Amicable Life Assurance Society is, but... No, don't do any of us. (laughs) Yeah. Um, A colleague of Mr. Drayton's on both the Midland Bank and the bank's executor and trust is... is, um, Retired Honorable Lord W. KBECMG. Retired Honorable Lord Value, who happens to be at the same time Deputy Chairman of the Central Mining and Investment Corporation, on which Harry F. Oppenheimer is to be found. Lord Value sits on the English and Scottish and Australian banks. Another director of Standard Bank is Mr. William Antony Acton, whose close ties with the banking world are seen in his Deputy Chairmanship of the National Bank and Directorships of the Bank of London and Montreal. Standard Bank and Finance, Standard Bank Finance and Development Corporation, Bank of London, and South America Bank of West Africa. Basically, all of these guys are like CEOs or on the board of directors for like seven different banks. Seems that um, It's it's pretty fucking crazy. It is certainly not sheer coincidence that the Lord Luke of 
of Pavenheim has a seat with the FHC Drayton of the Board of Ashanti Goldfields and occupies directorship on the Bank of London and South America on which Mr. Acton is seated. I didn't know they did like Lord of like that anymore. I thought that was like medieval, but Lord Luke of Pavenham. Um... Nor can it be by mere chance that Mr. Esmond Charles Baring, former director and London agent of Anglo-American Corporation and associated with a number of companies in the Oppenheimer Group, as a member of the family that operates the merchant house of the Baring Brothers and maintains the closest links in, with the investment world. Other important personages who graced the board of British South Africa Company in 1963 with the late Sir Charles J. Hambro, uh, whatever PPV Amarsis Evans and Viscount Malvern PCCH. I don't know why we have all these initials. Sir Charles Hambro was the senior director of the bank of England. He chaired the biggest of the city of London's merchant banks, the 176 million pound Hambro's bank and presided over union corporation, the South African mining finance group, which embraces numerous of the Anglo American interests with with the Harry F. Oppenheimer concerns. I'm going to be honest here. This book is brilliant. This book is super educational. I love it so far. And I was excited to do media criticism sounding chapter. And this has got to be the most boring media criticism I've ever what? seen in my no, life. Come on, man. We're getting to the bottom <laughs> of shit. We're, we're finding out things. We are tying. We're tying all the webs together. It's like, this guy's rich and this guy's connected. And this guy's connected. But I feel like I'm just reading a bunch of names that were famous in the 50s that I'll never <laughs> know about in my life. Um... The Standard Bank of South Africa crops up once more among directorships of Lord Malvern, which includes Scottish Rhodesia Finance and Merchant Bank of Central Africa. The last named bank is a creation of the Rothschilds Banking Group. Oh, I was going to get rid of the Rothschilds. Uh, in which one ba- finds Bank Lambert, one of the important Belgian banks, and some 17 to 5%. Oh, 17.5% of whose interests are concentrated in Africa, notably in the Congo. The bank also has an interest in another Rothschild's creation, the Five Arrows Security Company, which is an investment house operating in Canada and under Rockefeller influence. Can't get away from the Rockefellers either. Gotta love that shit. Um, Mr. Paul V. Amarsis Evans, British South Africa Company's vice president, is now president of Oppenheimer's expansive Anglo-American corporation, and also upon that of Barclays Bank, DCO. A seat on Rio Tinto Zinc Corporation brings Mr. Amaris Evans into the company of Lord Ballew. It is deputy chairman and his associations with H.C. Drayton. Several of the leading British banks and insurance companies and some of their European associates participate in the Standard Bank. Its chairman, Sir Frank Cyril Hawker, used to represent the Bank of England and its vice chairman, Sir F.W. Leithross, represents the National Provisional Bank. W.A. Acton's banking associations have already been outlined above. Yeah, y'all remember when we outlined W.A. Acton's Banking yeah, Association, Yeah, I was going to say, right? I don't feel like so deep in this I've lost track, but whatever. H.C. Uh, <laughs> Drayton brings in the interests of his own financial groups, as well as those of Midland Bank and Eagle Star Insurance. Sir E.L. Hall Patch, a director of the Standard Bank of South Africa, who's resigned at the July 1963 annual meeting, is a director of Commercial Union Assurance Company. Sir G.S. Harvey Watt is an association of A.C. Drayton on Eagle Star Insurance, and the Midland Bank. He is the chairman of Consolidated Goldfields and a director of American Zinc Lead and Smelting Company of the 
USA. So again, I mean, all of these guys are ahead of, you know, resource extraction companies and banks. They're kind of back and forth sitting on multiple boards everywhere you look. John Francis Prideau brings the interests of the Commonwealth Development Corporation into the bank, as well as those of Westminster Bank, the Bank of New South Wales, and sundry other financial and investment concerns. William Michael Robson, as vice chairman of the Joint East and Central African Board of the Standard Bank, brings to bear all those vested interests joined in the board, while he represents separately the investments of the finance holding, merchant, shipping, and plantation companies of the Booker Bros. McConnell Group, which has a monopoly grip upon the economy of British Guiana. Charles Hyde Villiers holds a brief for Bank Belge Limited and Sun Life Assurance Society. Bank Belge Limited is the London outlet of Banque de la Société Générale de Belgique and controls in its turn, among others, Banque de Congo, Belgium, Belgium American Banking Corporation, Belgian American Bank and Trust Company, Continental American Fund, Amerifund of Baltimore, USA, and Canada Fund Co., Montreal, Canada. The headline, New Factoring Company Set Up in Germany, uh, Financial Times, October 4th, 1963, has a superficially innocuous look. However, the briefest glance at the text takes us at once right into the world of international banking, for we meet extensions of British and American capital that have stimulated and supported an international factoring venture, which has expanded in a very short time across four continents. The focal point is a Swiss holding company, International Factors AG of Chur. Its nominal capital is Swiss francs 6 billion, about 490,000 pounds. It has now established, oh, 6 million, I apologize, 6 million, which is 490,000 pounds. It has now established activity in Germany, where a company, International Factors Deutschland, has been set up in conjunction with three German banks. The Schur company, retaining 50% of the capital, of the rest, 20% is held by the Frankfurter Bank, 25% by Mitch Reinsky Credit Bank, Derek de Horbach & Co., and 5% by a private bank in Frankfurt, George Hawk. Frankfurter Bank's portion, however, will be enlarged by the fact that it has acquired a 51% stake in Horbach & Co. by way of a share exchange. The heavy banking interests behind the international factoring venture which has affiliates in Switzerland, Australia, South Africa, Israel, and now Germany, are the First National Bank of Boston and M. Samuel & Co. of London. A holding company under Samuel Influence, Torzer, Kemsley, and Milbourne Holdings is a third. The First National Bank of Boston, once firmly inside the Great Morgan Financial Empire, has, since 1955, come increasingly under Rockefeller influence, though it still has significant ties with Morgan. It is joined with Chase National Bank, Rockefeller, and the American Overseas Finance Corporation. I like how Chairman it specifies M- Chase oh. National, and it's it's like it's so far into the future that I, I don't know. I lost my track of thought. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is it is wild though. I just I, yeah, I mean, like all of these banks are so interconnected. We can even see it all with the mergers and the split of parts. And now we're talking yeah. about all the people behind the scenes being the same. And I don't know. It's just taking me entirely in the same brain flow. I do love that Morgan, though, and Ch- Rockefeller, Morgan and Chase are now more yeah. than the same. Like they, like yeah. they're talking about them as great rivals, and now they have formed into monopoly too. So it's, right. it's ridiculous. Uh, chairman of M. Samuel & Co. is Viscount Beerstead, a director of the Rothschild Creation Alliance Assurance Company and its affiliate, Sun Alliance Insurance. 
chairman of both these insurance companies is Mr. D. Bar- T.D. Barclay, a director of Barclays Bank. You don't say Barclays Bank France <laughs> and British Linen Bank, a Barclays Bank affiliate. Um, <laughs> I love how we were going to get away from a Barclays Bank, but no, the British Linen Bank is just an affiliate. Um, yeah. At the beginning of February 1963, the first national city bank of New York through International Banking Corporation institutions controlled by the Rockefeller interests bought a 16.66% share in Mem Samuel & Co., represented by 600,000 ordinary shares at a cost of 1.9 billion pounds. First National City placed the chairman of its executive committee, R.S. Perkins, upon the Samuel board. The shot in the arm injected by the Rockefeller Capital has enabled the Samuel banking firm to spread itself into the European market, where it has joined the European Bankers Association brought together by the important French bank, Banque de Paris, at Des Pays Bay. This is government estudes pour les analyses des valeurs européennes, whose purpose is to canalize what is called institutional investment. I told you we weren't getting away from the French names. No, no, we weren't. I, I see it coming. The House of M. Samuel has also been placed in charge of managing another common market organization domiciled in London, New European and General Investment Trust, in which it is associated with Banque Lambert, Banque de Paris, et de Paybas, Paysbas, the prominent German banking house of Sal, Oppenheim, and C, the Dutch banks Lippmann, Rosenthal, and Co., the Credito Italiano of Italy, Banco Eurico of Spain, and Union de Banque Suisse of Switzerland. We may appear to have gone at some length into the intricacies of the financial and economic interests behind signs some of the not innocent looking headlines. Yes, we did. That does appear yeah. to be what we did. <laughs> That, that seems to be it. A You've bit. nailed it. You've nailed it in one, Nkrumah. Uh, yet there, these are, in fact, the merest directional indications of today's trend of ever tightening links between a short list of incredibly powerful groups that dominate our lives on a global scale. The task of taking their detailed significance farther is the main purpose of this book. Nevertheless, even this brief breakdown provides illuminating evidence of the serpentine interlocking of financial monopoly today. What we observe above all is the constant penetration of a few banking and financial institutions into large industrial and commercial undertakings, creating a chain of links that brings them into a connective relationship making for domination in both national and international economy. The influence exercised by this domination is carried into politics and international affairs so that the interests of the overriding monopoly groups govern national policies. Their representatives are placed in key positions in government, army, navy, and air force, in the diplomatic service, in the policymaking bodies, and in international organizations and institutions through which the chosen policies are filtered onto the world scene. The process had already reached a high enough pitch before the outbreak of the First World War to call forth a number of important studies of its growth and potentialities. Two of these studies, Imperialism by the English liberal J.A. Hobson, published in 1902, and Finance Capital by the Austrian Marcus Rudolf Hilferling. Oh, good. Austrian Marxists. I'm here for it. I'll take the Finance Capital book, please. Uh, published in 1910, were used by Lenin as the main basis of his study of imperialism, which he described as the highest stage of capitalism. It came at the stage at which competition transformed into monopoly the so-called combination of production, that is to say, the grouping in a single enterprise of different branches of industry and monopoly itself became dominated by banking and finance capital. Lenin's study was written in 1916, and since then, the domination of financial monopoly has sped up tremendously. 
So now he's pointing at Lenin and saying, yeah, you know, and, and we read imperialism. I mean, that's exactly yes, what happened, did. right? That's why he named it. He said specifically about that 1902 work. That's why he named it imperialism. And um, so now Nkrumah is saying, oh, yeah, you know, Lenin wrote about this. This is what we're doing. But it's advanced and we're advancing it. Yep. Exactly. How- Yep. How is it possible that capitalism, rooted in free enterprise and competition, has arrived at a stage where competition is being eroded to the point where pyramid, pyramidal monopolies exercise dict- dictatorial rights? The possibility lay in the very fact of free enterprise itself. The spur of competition led to invention on several planes. New machinery was devised to increase output and profit. Factories grew larger. Small units became unprofitable and were either driven out or swallowed up by bigger ones. Rail communication improved distribution and better ocean transport, stimulated overseas trade and the bringing of foreign raw materials. The joint stock company that encouraged the growth of rail and ocean transport served as a forcing instrument for banking and insurance growth. The new company laws assisted its extension to industrial and commercial enterprises in which the individual investor's risk was lessened by the limitation upon its liability. Competition moved on to another level. Companies that possessed large capital were able to call upon it in their own security and were able to wield an unequal influence against weaker ones. Profits became hinged to the elimination of competition. The enormous expansion of industry at the end of the last century and the beginning of the present was accompanied by a rapid concentration into ever larger enterprises. Combination of production was established as a cardinal feature of capitalism. Firms... (coughs) that had begun concentrating upon one function of an industry spread into a group enterprise that represented the consecutive stages of raw material processing or were ancillary to one another. Trading houses extended other activities into distribution and then the actual production of finished goods from primary materials produced from the plantations and mines they acquired in overseas territories. Hilferding, in his classic work upon the subject, Finance Capital, explains the reason behind this process. Combination levels out the fluctuations of trade and therefore assures combined enterprises a more stable rate of profit. Secondly, combination has the effect of eliminating trade. Thirdly, it has the effect of rendering it possible technical improvements, consequentially the acquisition of super profits over and above those obtained by the pure non-combined enterprises. Fourthly, it strengthens the position of the combined enterprises compared with that of the pure enterprises, strengthens them in the competitive struggle in periods of serious depression, and when the fall in prices of raw materials does not keep pace with the fall in prices of manufactured goods. So basically, I mean, we've gone... Yeah. Yeah, no, we've go gone all the way back to centralization from, from mm-hmm. Marx and from capital, expl- yeah. yeah, and explained it well and cited it in specific industries and how they rose up to monopoly. Exactly, and that is where we are going to end it for the week. Uh, we will pick this up next week on on Marx Madness Pod. But if in the meantime you wanted to reach out to us for any reason, you can absolutely do that in one of three ways. The first of which would be to reach out to us on email. Our email address is marxmadnesspod at gmail.com. The next way you can reach out to us would be on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at marxmadnesspod, uh, and our DMs are open. Uh, last but not least, if you wanted a more day-to-day conversation with us or to reach out to us with some crazy article you just saw that made your head explode as happened to David today um, or want to lament that we can't play Final Fantasy because the servers are overloaded which has been Nathan's day um, 
That all being said, uh, you can do that through Discord. Our Discord link is in our Twitter bio. Uh, and if you don't want to use Twitter to get that link, which why would you? It's Twitter. It's hell. Uh, feel free to email us and we will send you a link to the server as well. Uh, great place. Great comrades. Happy to be there. Proud to have them. Uh, and that being said, David, I believe it is time for a disclaimer. Uh, yeah. So obviously we do this because we want to make sure theory is more accessible to anyone out there. And, um, the way that kind of started is, you know, we got together and, and Nathan wanted to read Capital and said, Hey, this is something you read with one person and you've read it before. Can you read it with me? And I was like, sure. Great. Great idea. Why don't we record it? And then we'll see, because the groups are normally supposed to be more than two people, we'll see if it's something worth sharing. And it is. And since we decided it was something worth sharing, we've always hoped that in that accessibility, uh, the way it's delivered is hopefully you're in a reading group, you're in a political education group, in whatever group you're organizing with. And um, whatever they're they're doing, they're reading this book along with us. And we can be another point of input, another uh, resource in that group. Uh, say for that, let's say they're reading something else, something shorter, something more applicable to a project you're working on right now uh, and we can be that reading group for you when you're reading the the work um, and let's say you know you're not reading the work and it's either uh, a book like this where it's kind of an enhanced ebook and we're reading it word for word uh, or a book where we summarize more whatever we can do to bring these works to you because we do want these works out there guiding your actions when you're these works when this theory is driven into action that's a phenomenon called praxis where we have actual actions to drive revolution um, and of course, with no theory, there's no such thing as praxis. And without praxis, the theory is completely useless. They go hand in hand. They are tied at the hip. Amen. As always, that being said, this is Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye. Bye.